I think our younger children can be dismissed to Children's Church now. The rest of you want to get out your sermon outline. This is the choice of Christ. The 55th sermon in John. We are moving right along. We are in John chapter 15 today, verses 12 through 17. Great passage as part of Jesus' upper room discourse where he's talking to his disciples. That's where we are today. So I encourage you to get out your outline, get out your Bibles. Let's turn to John 15, verses 12 through 17. And uh, read along with me, uh, or listen as I read this passage. There's a great passage here. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we read this, and it's a simple command. And there are simple statements in here. But if we think about it for a moment, we realize it's much harder to do and to live. So I pray this morning that you would show us and and work in our hearts and minds how we might bring these things uh, to become more common in our life, that we might open ourselves to the work of your Spirit, that you might change us, that we may bear fruit, that we may love one another, and that it may last. Do this for each of us. Help us now as we hear your word as we apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. During the uh, 1990s, uh, primarily in the 90s, one of the most coveted and sought-after designations in America was to be known as an FOB. To be an FOB was to belong to an exclusive and prestigious group If you were an FOB, it meant you were a friend of Bill. Bill Clinton, that is. And so people were known as a friend of Bill. And membership was pretty much limited to uh, the very rich and the very famous. A lot of uh, FOBs in Hollywood. And the perks of being a friend of Bill included sleepovers at the White House frequent mention in the gossip columns and on the entertainment shows. Well, I was thinking about that, and I realized I'm an FOB, too. Well, almost. See, I'm a friend of Bruce. It's not quite the same. Bruce, of course, being the foreman at the shop where I take my car to be serviced. 
And Bruce and I have coached baseball together, and uh, our boys have played on the same team a few times. And so I'm a friend of Bruce. But this is still a very good thing. See, when I drop my car off, Ashley, the service advisor, knows that I'm a friend of Bruce. And so she makes sure that I get treated well. And she makes sure whatever technician works on my car, uh, that they have Bruce check it out and test drive it before it's released to make sure that the repair was done right. And when I come by to pick up the car, Bruce always uh, comes in to tell me what was done and what I need to do to keep it running right. And uh, then we talk baseball. I like being a friend of Bruce. But I have good news for you this morning. Well, you may not be a friend of Bruce or even a friend of Bill. Uh, we have an opportunity to join an even better friends group. One that isn't all that exclusive. And it doesn't take a fortune to belong to it. It welcomes everyone willing to accept the membership requirements. And it offers much more joy and satisfaction and a far better reward uh, to all its members. And you don't even have to talk baseball. Though that might help. And this group, of course, is called the FOJs, the Friends of Jesus. And you can qualify for membership in this group. We're reading today from the 15th chapter of John. And Jesus is gathered with his disciples in the upper room, and he's talking to them. And these are the words that he is speaking to them hours before his death. It's the last night of Jesus' life on earth. And he's gathered his disciples in Jerusalem and they've just finished sharing the Passover meal, celebrating the uh, supper of a new covenant uh, with each other. And now Jesus is pouring his heart out to his followers. He's preparing them for life and ministry without his physical presence. And in the course of his upper room discourse, as these chapters are known, fills four rich chapters in the Gospel of John. And Jesus speaks here to his disciples about joy and peace and hope. And he warns of suffering and trials and loneliness. And he makes promises and gives counsel and instruction and offers prayer. But most of all, Jesus talks about love. Love each other. Love one another. He urges them over and over again. This is what I want you to do. I don't just think of you as my servants anymore because a servant doesn't really know his master's mind and heart. But I've told you everything I know about God and everything I want you to do. So really, you're my friends, not my, just my servants. And at least you'll be my friends if you do what I tell you. And what I tell you to do is love. Last week I said that the dominant word in John 15 is the word abide. It appears numerous times. So this week we're going to look at a, an aspect of abiding. Specifically, who is Jesus calling to abide? So let's do that. And starting uh, with the need for us to abide to love. We abide in order to love. Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, Jesus frames this whole passage, this paragraph, with his command that we love one another. We see it in verse 12 and verse 17, kind of like bookends. And the middle, verses 12 to 17, are filled with Christ because the loving community is filled with Christ. 
and he wants us to love one another, but notice he doesn't want us, he doesn't say, to abide in one another. When we're abiding in him, we abide, we love each other, we abide in him. And when we abide in him, then we have something to give each other. And really, verse 12 is just uh, simply a restatement of John 13, 34 earlier, which said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now that sounds fairly simple and straightforward. Love one another. We can all sign off on that. It sounds pretty easy. But in practice, the reality is, it's pretty hard. I think it's hard now, and I think it was hard then. And don't think for a moment that because Jesus tells you to love other people, that all of a sudden those other people have become very lovable. A lot of people aren't lovable. They're difficult. They're hurtful. They're selfish. They're sinful. But Jesus tells them, tells you, tells me, to love them as I have loved you. That's what makes it hard. Romans 5.8 tells us, we saw in our responsive reading this morning, God chose his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Two verses later, verse 10, it says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And earlier in that, I think verse 6, it says we were weak. What does that mean? It means when we were driving the nails into his hands and feet and saying to him, die, enemy, die, before you ruin my perfect little world. When we were doing that to him, he wasn't screaming back at us. He was saying, you treat me as your enemy, but I've determined to love you as my friend. And that's the cross of Christ. And there is no greater love And therefore, when Jesus says he loves you, that love started while we were weak, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, according to Romans 5. Jesus loves us even though we are difficult, hurtful, selfish, and sinful people. And if marriage is the analogy to Christ and his people, as Ephesians 5 uh, says that it is, then this applies to that arena as well. Most of us have been married, are married, or will be married. And I guarantee you that both people in marriage are difficult, hurtful, selfish, and sinful. Hope that's not really, really disappointing. But Jesus tells you to love them. He tells you to love each other here today. That's hard. There are people not here today who used to be a part of this fellowship but have left, largely because they felt unloved. And yes, that may be more perception than reality, but it was their perception and they're gone. And for a church like ours that prides itself on being warm and friendly and welcoming, that should hurt. That ought to hurt. I think it does, and I think it's supposed to. 
Remember when Jesus met Peter after the resurrection? Peter had denied Christ three times. Three times Christ asked him, Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter responded, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And three times Jesus said, feed my sheep. And I can imagine that scene. I can imagine Peter saying, but Lord, you know, I don't love sheep. They're dirty. They stink. They smell. They're stupid. I don't love sheep. And Jesus answering, Peter, I didn't ask you if you love sheep. I asked you if you loved me. And if you love me, feed my sheep. Jesus doesn't ask us to love the lovable people. Not just to love the people that we get along with. Not to love the people who are real easy to love. He just says love one another. And one another may include some pretty unlovable people. But why? If you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, love one another. We must abide in Christ if we're going to love as Jesus has loved us. Second thing we see here is to abide as friends. Verse 13 through 15. It says, abide as friends. Uh, It says, starting at verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than someone uh, lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Now, it's easy to call someone a friend, but friendships have certain characteristics. And I think there are some very special characteristics for someone who considers themselves to be a friend of Jesus. Now, the scriptures give us many characteristics that could be applied here, but I think there's a couple in these verses that we can focus on a little bit this morning. And the first is sacrifice. Now, the word sacrifice is a big word. It's most commonly used to describe momentous events. When someone sacrifices themselves for another, it's usually referring to some sort of life-changing event. And certainly that's the context of verse 13, because laying down your life is used as a demonstration of the greatest kind of love. And of course, Jesus own demonstration of this is clear. We read in Hebrews 9, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. But is there another meaning of sacrifice, of laying down one's life? And I think that there is. The Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 that you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And this is a different kind of sacrifice, a daily laying down your life for your friends, sort of a spiritual selflessness. And I think this, in many ways, is the more difficult sacrifice because it's a constant sacrifice. In this context, we see that Being a friend means being a giver. Friend gives of her time. She spends time listening, encouraging, visiting. A friend is there when you need him. A friend gives of his talents. She serves his friends by helping them out when they need it. It's been said 
um, that you'll find out how many friends you really have when your car breaks down at one in the morning. And you got to call somebody to come get you. A friend gives of his resources. A friend puts gas in your car and food on your table when you don't have any money. See, ministering to your friends is a way of building up the church, and it takes the same things to build up your friends as it takes to build up the church. Your time, your talents, and your money. And ministering to others in Christ's name always requires your most valuable assets because it's the most valuable work. So the first characteristic of being a friend of Jesus is sacrifice, which leads right to the uh, next characteristic, which is obedience. In this passage, we read Jesus saying, verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, obedience doesn't make his friends. Grace does that. But obedience describes his friends. Now think about that. Does that sound at all odd to you? I mean, what if I said to Mark right here, you are my friend if you do what I command you. That works in my favor. I think I'll try that on the session. They might think twice about that. Because we don't define friendship in that way. But Jesus does. He makes us his friends by the cross. He calls us into abiding friendship, but he sets the terms. We can't set any preconditions. So the question we should ask is not, is Jesus my friend? He's already proven that. The question is, am I his friend? He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus wants us to be his friends. He knows this is true when he can see the Christian life in us by the fruit we bear, by the obedience we give, by the love we share. And because we can be friends with Christ, we're able to be friends with each other and do for each other some of the things that Christ does for us. We call those the communicable attributes of God. We can love each other as God has loved us. We can show mercy to each other as God has shown mercy to us. Those sorts of things. And Jesus' friends obey him because they are in Christ. Our union with Christ laid out repeatedly for us in Romans and Ephesians means that we're able to be living like Christ. Not just in our actions, but also in our minds and our attitudes. Uh, Philippians 2.5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In the NIV, that verse is translated, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And so being a friend of Jesus means that we're thinking like Jesus. We're being obedient like Jesus. We're living sacrificially like Jesus. On a daily basis, even in the small things. But of course, this too is far easier said than done. So how do we do it? How do we do it? Well, I think the first thing we need to understand is that friends of Jesus need other friends of Jesus in order to keep living as a friend of Jesus. I'll say that again. Friends of Jesus need other friends of Jesus in order to keep living as a friend of Jesus. And Jesus' friends work together to help each other obey him. 
Proverbs 27:17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And we need our friends to hold us accountable in the Christian life. Real friends ask us what we've been learning from the Bible, how our prayer life is going. Are we spending enough time at home with our families, with our spouses? Are we faithful in our attendance and our giving at church? Real friends ask hard questions, speaking the words of Scripture into each other's lives. And whenever we hear of Christians lapsing into some serious sin, we hear the same uh, excuse, the same response, same words over and over again. There was no one to hold me accountable. And Jesus also says that he can call his friends because he shared with us everything he's learned from his father. And likewise, sharing with each other is a mark of friendship. And by sharing, I don't mean just hanging out and talking with each other. That's a good thing. But I think it's talking about sharing the real concerns of your heart, the important truths of the Scripture, the kinds of things that uh, God the Father would share with God the Son, and God the Son makes known to us. That's the kind of stuff we ought to be talking about with each other. You know, where your real feelings can be shared without fear of the confidence being broken, where you can be listened to without being judged, where your fears can be calmed. It's one of the great assets of a small group. You can see in the uh, bulletin, there's a number of those. Pick one. It's a place where you can make friends and share your heart. So first, we abide in Christ in order to love as Jesus has loved us. And second, we abide in Christ in order to be his friends, not just as a statement, but in our actions and our attitudes. And finally, we abide as followers. Verses 16 and 17. We abide as followers. It says there, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Rich taught about commands of God, the law of God this morning in Sunday school. And here's one of them. Jesus says, these things I command you that you love one another. He doesn't say, guys, here's a really good suggestion. I think this would really help you out. He says at least four times in John, these things... I command you that you will love one another. Once again, let there be no misunderstanding of the privilege the Lord has granted to them and to us as his friends. He reminds us that this comes not because of our wisdom or our goodness or our right choices, but because of Christ's choice of them. I entitled this sermon... Uh, Originally, I entitled it The Friends of Christ, which would be good, but I entitled it The Choice of Christ because you've got to understand who's doing the choosing here. I didn't look out and say, you know, Jesus looks like a really together, smart person. You know, I want to hang out with him. You know, man always feels the initiative lies here with me. But Jesus makes a special point in the middle of this long chapter about abiding in Christ and loving one another and bearing fruit. He makes this one point right in the middle 
to sort of disabuse us of the notion that it starts here. It's short and to the point, but it's critical because if all of a sudden we think it's all up to us, the reality would be that it would all fall apart. And Jesus wants us to abide, to last, to remain. And so he is both the beginning and the end of any relationship that we have with him. Now, wait a minute. Think about this. This is us the Lord is talking about. And in John 15, he talks about joy unspeakable and being full of glory and laying down our lives for our friends and leaving lasting fruit. Could that possibly be a description of people whose lives are as ordinary as ours? Could that possibly be us that Jesus is talking about when we stumble and fail as often as we do? I doubt there's any one of us here that's truly comfortable finding ourselves in the Lord's description of those who abide in him and bear fruit of sacrificial love and lasting blessing in the lives of others. We may see a bit of this from time to time, but we see much more that does not seem to fit the Lord's picture here at all. Or does it? Remember, Jesus began... We talked about this last week. He began by talking about the Father pruning the branches. Have you ever seen a vineyard pruned after harvest? The vines don't look anything like they did before the harvest. The vineyard is a mass of ugly, unpromising stumps. And for months, the vineyard is like that. Unimpressive, pitiful, unpromising until the growth returns in the spring. And that's the Lord's description of us as well. After the Father has pruned us, unimpressive, pitiful, unpromising, now I can recognize myself in the Lord's description of a Christian here. And there's a great deal of pruning going on all the time among Christians. Trouble, affliction, failure, in one way or another, it's all the Father's work of pruning. And the good news is not only do we bear the fruit together when it comes time for the harvest, but also we get pruned together. Remember, he's pruning the church. That's all of us. So this friendship thing, this sharing thing, is certainly a collective thing. We're all in this together. Now, if sharing with each other is one of the key building blocks of friendship, then praying about what was shared is the cement that holds the blocks together. Jesus makes a specific reference here to prayer. He talks about uh, abiding, about him choosing us, about bearing fruit that will last so that God the Father will answer our prayers. And if fruitfulness is a product of the relationship with Christ, then prayer is the power that comes from that relationship. The fruit in your life and in your friend's life is made effective by praying for each other in Jesus' name. And this kind of prayer gives friends the power to love each other, verse 12, and the power to obey his commands, verse 14. Remember, Jesus is the model. He wants us to share our love for one another, not the way the world loves, but the way he loves. He says, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus loved the disciples unconditionally. 
And we need to love our friends even when they're not loving us back. Jesus loved them in their unbelief. And we need to love our friends even when they're struggling with doubts. Jesus loved them in their pettiness. And the disciples could be pretty petty. Remember, who's going to sit on your right hand? Who's going to sit on your left? Me, me? Can it be me, please? And sometimes our friends can be petty. And sometimes we can be petty. And Jesus says we still need to love them. He loved them in their desertion. Sometimes our friends don't act like friends anymore. And we need to keep loving them. Jesus loved them in their denial. And sometimes our friends lie to us. And it really hurts. But we need to love them even more. And Jesus loved them in their laziness. And our friends can be pretty lazy sometimes about their family, about the church. Our job is to keep loving them. Jesus loved them in their betrayal and he loved them to the very end. Proverbs seventeen seventeen says, A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. In Proverbs eighteen twenty four, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So where do we find a picture of friends who are always there? There's lots of pictures. One of my favorite comes from television, comes from the secular world. Sometimes we learn great biblical truths from the secular world, truths that they aren't even intending to teach. And from 1982 to 1993, one of the most popular television shows in America was a comedy called Cheers. How many of you remember it? Okay, a little more than half. I know we have a lot of younger people here who weren't watching television between 82 and 93, so you'll have to ask your folks about this one. The show Cheers was set in a Boston tavern. And the series revolved around the patrons who frequent the bar. There were no murders or kidnappings, no high-speed car chase scenes, no drug deals, no criminal conspiracies. It was just the, the daily interactions of Sam and Diane, Woody and Rebecca, Frazier and Lilith, and of course, Carla, Cliff, and Norm. Lonely people who are drawn to the camaraderie of crying in one another's beer. And while we may not have always liked the humor of the show, it's important to appreciate the reasons for the show's popularity. I always thought the very best part of the show, my favorite part of the show, was the theme song at the beginning. In fact, I've been known to turn the show on, listen to the theme song, and then turn it off. But the theme song outlines the plot of the show and it explains its success. Listen to what it says. Maybe you can remember it. Making your way in the world today takes everything you got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. Four beats. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see. Our troubles are all the same. 
You want to go where everybody knows your name. It was great. I've seen people start crying when they heard that theme song. (laughs) Now, the characters of Cheers are greeted heartily when they enter the tavern. Doors burst open. Norm walks in. Everybody says, Norm! He walks all the way around the bar, sits in the same stool. Not that people here would ever sit in the same place. And their friends make a place for them at the bar. And they ask about their day. And they share their doubts and their fears and their failures and their victories, their hates and their loves. It's group therapy for the price of a six-pack. It's confession without a priest. It's acceptance without fear of rejection. And millions and millions of people tuned in every week to experience this belonging and wonder if there might just be such a place for them. Now, as soon as Cheers ended in 1993, the very next year, 1994, a similar formula was created for another show. It was moved to an apartment building, updated, and repeated for the next generation in the show Friends. And it ran every week for another 10 years. They changed the characters, they changed the situation, they made it younger, but it's essentially the same show. And obviously some smart television producer has recognized what many Christians fail to see. The people are looking for a place where they're known, where others are glad to see them, where they're accepted and called by name. They search for an environment where their need to love and be loved can be met, where they can connect with others and have real friendships. And they're not picky at all about where they find this environment. They know beggars can't be choosers, and a bar is as good a place as any. And Satan knows that. In fact, the neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit that there is to the fellowship that Christ wants to give to his people, to his friends. It's an imitation, dispensing alcohol instead of grace. Escape rather than reality. But it's an accepting fellowship. You can tell people secrets and they usually don't tell anyone else, at least not outside the group at the bar. And the bar flourishes not because people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to to know and to be known, to love and be loved. And lonely people will do anything not to be lonely. And they will go anywhere where everybody knows their name. Now, does the God who made us people of relationships, people of friendships, provide an alternative to the bars of the world? Wouldn't the one who created us uh, and created our need for friends create a place for that need to be met? And think about it. By God's design, fish swim in schools, wolves uh, roam in packs, Bees fly in swarms. Cattle stay in a herd. What do people do when they gather to support and nourish each other with real friendship? And in a word, they church. See, Jesus doesn't want us out wandering around looking for friends. 
He wants us to fellowship here with his people. He wants us to become friends. He wants us to bear fruit. And he says the way that happens is when we abide in him. And therein is true friendship found. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close.